Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King. Adam Silverstein here to lead you through these hard times, data with instant analysis of WWE Hell in a Cell. That's right, your favorite professional wrestling podcast is here just minutes after WWE Hell in a Cell went off the air to break down everything that happened on the show and look ahead to what it means for WWE storylines going forward, both in terms of Survivor Series in November and potentially WrestleMania 37 next spring. There is plenty to get to on today's show. We are not going to waste a lot of time. Very quick, do not forget to follow this show on Twitter at Getting Over. Please make sure you follow us. Tweet us your thoughts about professional wrestling, really any brand. Retweet us. Check out the highlights we post, the clips. We, you know, every single show, brand new, as soon as it comes off the presses, we let you know on Twitter that it is live. So do not forget to follow us and interact with us one-on-one with the great ones. Also, do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop us a five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. And do not forget to tell your friends, family, barbers, dentists, and musician pals what your favorite wrestling podcast is. Now, joining me today, as always, to break down the latest WWE pay-per-view instant analysis style is none other than the vintage one, Chris Vanini. Chris, it has been a long weekend filled with mostly football, but we are here breaking down WWE. I'm pretty excited to break this down. I think WWE on Sunday night gave us, dare I say, a fourth consecutive very damn good show. Very good show. And it's, and it wasn't just football this weekend. We've got the World Series going on as well. It has been a packed weekend, and WWE, WWE held, up, uh, held up its own here. Do people really care about the World Series? So, like, I was just saying this to somebody, like, every year I say I want to watch the World Series, and then every year there's just something better on. It, it, it's college football. It's the NFL. It's it's a, a WWE pay-per-view sometimes, and then I don't get to it as much as I want to. So uh, I, I've watched some of it, not as much as I want to, but maybe that's my own fault. My level of care about the World Series is that the Dodgers win, so the Rays don't. Just like my care about the NBA Finals was that the Lakers win, so the Heat don't. Other than that, and I'm not even a front runner. I don't like the Dodgers and I don't like uh, the Lakers, nor do I root for either of them. But I do, with every fiber of my being, hate, hate the Miami Heat. And I dislike strongly the Tampa Bay Rays. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you're, just, you're, I, you're, the first, you're the first person I've ever heard who dislikes the, the Tampa Bay Rays. That's a first. Well, I'm a Yankees fan. They're, they're in the I, division. I, I'm not going to root for you, them. I know, but you're the Yankees. I'm surprised you even like acknowledge their existence. No, I dislike them. I, di- I, don't, I don't hate them. I hate <laughs> the Boston Red Sox. I dislike I dislike the Orioles. I dislike the Rays. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's that crazy. All right. There's a strong dislike. That's all. I, I'm also in Florida. Don't forget. So it's it's a team. When I see the Yankees play in Florida, especially when I was in college, I had to go to Tampa. So I always had to deal with those fans. It's different when you live here. When you live in Florida and you don't like the Florida teams and you see what these fans are about down here, trust me, you hate <laughs> them more than you normally would otherwise. Trust me. It's when you're a Knicks fan living in Heat country, it's bad. It's bad to be around Heat fans. Anyway, we're not here to we're not here to talk about professional sports. We're not here to talk about college sports. Although. We can maybe pour one out a little bit for the Michigan State Spartans. Your Michigan State Spartans, I should say. Uh, yeah. Who? I don't know what you're talking about. 
Uh, the team that uh, Rutgers broke its 21-game losing streak in Ooh, Big Ten play against. It's going to be a long fall, I can tell you that, for the Michigan State yeah, Spartans. Yeah, uh, Mel Tucker needs to step his ass up on that. But, okay, anyway, we're not here to talk about any of that. We're actually here to talk about professional wrestling and the way we do that instant analysis style coming out of a pay-per-view. The very first thing we do, we crack a beer. It's late on Sunday night. It's time to relax. Time to talk some wrestling. Now, you're not going to hear the cool you know, can opening sound effect for me because the Silver King once again is opening a Crowler, a 32 ounce beer. I already poured it. I have a delicious apple pie caramel cream ale from Due South Brewing in Boynton Beach, Florida. My favorite brewery, basically one of my five favorite beers that they make. It's actually the first time I've ever done it. Uh, my favorite beer is the caramel cream ale. This apple pie is a special version. It's a treat. I've had it in the fridge since July. It's delicious, Chris. What do you have rocking on your end? I've got a, a Bell's Sparkleberry, which is a raspberry Belgian style ale. Uh, my wife Gabby went to the store a couple days ago and got a bunch of different things. So, so you restock finally? Yeah. Speaking of Michigan, shout out to Kalamazoo. Shout out to Bell's. Yes, great brewery. Bell's is legit. Yes. I mean, yeah. one of you know certainly I've never been there, but it's one of those where uh, I seek it out as often as I can, uh, especially when there's styles I haven't had before. So that sounds delicious. But we're not here, like I said, to talk sports. We're not here to talk beer. We're here to talk wrestling. And we're going to get into that right now with WWE Hell in a Cell. Now, I normally start these instant analysis by talking about the pre-show poll and, and what everyone's expectations were heading into the pay-per-view. But unfortunately, I forgot to publish the pre-show poll because I was so obsessed with everything that was going on in the NFL around that 4 p.m. Uh, window today. So no pre-show poll, but I'll tell you my expectations heading into Hell in a Cell. I was expecting a good show, straight up, flatly good. I was a little disappointed that there were only five matches announced and really only three that had a reason for being on a pay-per-view. And I think by the time the night ended, that proved to be true. There were really three matches that definitively were pay-per-view matches, maybe a fourth that probably deserved to be on the card in a lower card slot, which we got. But what I appreciated from Hell in a Cell, without giving away any of the results we're going to talk about in a minute, I appreciated that we got three Hell in a Cell matches spaced out over, you know, the better part of three hours. And all of them were not only booked differently in terms of the finishes, but the style of the matches were completely different. You can get really worn out with two Royal Rumbles, or even two held in a cells or two money in the bank matches. But the way they did this, each one seemed to be unique and special in its own right. That doesn't mean all of them were great. I think all of them were at least good. But WWE seemed to learn its lesson from 2018 and 2019, where the main event of Hell in a Cell was a bullshit finish for a crucial match and fans did not go home happy. Here, even though... Maybe you didn't think Drew McIntyre and Randy Orton should have main evented the show. I think if there was a live crowd, everyone would have gone home happy at the results of all three Hell in a Cell matches. Yeah, probably. I, I think, you know, this was a three match card coming in and, and, and we knew that. I was curious how on a small card with three Hell in a Cells, how they were going to space it out. I think you have to do it the way they did it in terms of uh, spreading them out. Um I, I liked them to varying degrees. Uh, we'll get into the order and, and how we thought they, that played out. But, you know, it, it came in with pretty decent expectations, and I think it pretty much hit them. I, I thought it was a really solid, good show. 
I think what WWE did really well is like you said, they spaced out the matches. They basically said, this is a try main event and we're giving you three bathroom breaks. I got defeated, Blair. I'll be right back. They gave us three separate instances where you could say, wow, I just watched a 25 minute burner. And that's what they were. All three matches were at least 25 minutes, the Hell in a Cell matches. And then they gave us like a, anywhere from a four to a seven minute, eight minute match where if you wanted to take a break, you could. Or if you wanted to zone out and look at your phone, you could. But then they hit you right back with another Hell in a Cell. So I did appreciate that booking. And I think you and I are in agreement, if I can speak for you, that the wrong match main evented Hell in a Cell. And that ended up being the WWE Championship match between Drew McIntyre and Randy Orton. Now, what we disagree about, because we did talk about this briefly before, is which match should have main evented. I believe it should have been the SmackDown Women's Championship, Bailey versus Sasha Banks, and you certainly believe it was Roman Reigns versus Jey Uso for the Universal Championship. So what Big we're going to do here, when we when we do instant analysis for these pay-per-views, we don't do it like our Ultimate Previews. Ultimate Previews, we normally run you know, worst to best almost. We save the best for last. We work our way up to the big match. For our instant analysis, we start with a bang. We start with the biggest match on the show. And generally, that's the main event. But what we're going to do on getting over today is we're going to course correct for WWE. We're going to book this the way it should have been booked. And since I am the host, since I run the show, since this is the Silver King's house, we're going to talk about what I believe to be the true main event. The SmackDown Women's Championship, Bailey versus Sasha Banks in a Hell in a Cell match. Now, before we get into the match, let's talk about what happened Friday night on SmackDown. Last week, Chris, you'll remember on our WWE show, I wondered how they would force Bailey to sign the contract. And I thought what they did Friday worked well enough. It was a bit silly that Bailey cared so much about the physical belt itself to put herself in that situation that she did. But otherwise, it was good with Banks wrapping a chair around her head in a callback and forcing her to sign the contract. The aggressiveness that we saw there is a really good look on Banks. And this, again, pumped me up for a feud for the second week in a row that we both agreed had been losing steam over the prior three or four weeks. Yeah, it, it, it was, you know, we had thought, hey, are, are they going to pause this, split them up with the draft, bring it back around to WrestleMania? Uh, we weren't sure if they were going to follow through on it. And then I think once it became clear that they were, uh, it got a little bit more heat in the last couple of weeks heading into this match. It did. Now, when Reigns and Jey Uso opened the show on Sunday, I thought this was going to main event. It's fine that it didn't because all three matches, no matter how you liked each one, what level you liked each one, all three of them were main event caliber. But this one could have, and certainly, like I said, if I was booking the show, it would have. These two, Bailey and Sasha Banks, looked like a million bucks during their entrances. It was a clear heaven versus hell vibe. Banks was wearing all white and she happened to have blue hair, so that kind of helped it. Bailey was in all black. They also did a really smart spot right before the bell rang with Banks drop kicking the chair out of the cell. Though you have to assume that there would have been more chairs under the ring. So why was that such a big deal? I know it was a specific chair that Bailey was using, but nevertheless, a chair ultimately is a chair when you're talking about a weapon. Uh, Banks ran up a tilted table, hit a meteora on Bailey into the cell, then did like this parkour thing off the ring for another meteora into the cell. 
They propped up kendo sticks between the cell wall and the handles of the stairs. And Bailey took both, sorry, Banks, I mean, took both a header into the kendo stick and then was slingshotted through them upwards by Bailey. Now, there's a lot to talk about in this match. So I'm going to break down a lot of the moves before Chris gets back in here. Just bear with me a little bit. I did take a lot of notes. Banks and Bailey, man, they traded sunset flip power bombs. Bailey went into the cell wall. Banks went into a chair propped up in the corner of the ring. Uh, Bailey escaped the bank statement by driving Banks right into the ring beam and then brutalizing her with the kendo stick while Sasha was trapped in the ring apron. Bailey then did this weird thing where she tried to duct tape two kendo sticks together lengthwise between the ring beam and the cell, but it failed. And it was almost a sense of she's trying a little bit too much. Like it was it was already great and they tried to go one step too far and it, it wasn't even a spot necessarily that made sense unless it was going to be something like someone running around the ring and tripping on it. And I, so I don't really know what the ultimate point of that was. But anyway, Banks went apeshit. She hit another Meteora into the cell. That was the move of the match. It was like a super kick, right? It was just every single time you turned around, Sasha Banks was hitting a Meteora. But she drilled her in, hit her with a kendo stick and started getting really emotional. She was trash talking. She then went for like an Eddie Guerrero homage with a frog splash. Bailey saved herself by picking up the chair just in time. Bailey hit that new finisher of hers outside the ring for a two count and then set up a ladder onto two chairs. She spray painted an X across the chest of Sasha Banks, dodged her move. Uh, then she used it as a step ladder to Meteora Bailey into the bottom turnbuckle and then hit the Bailey to belly on the ladder for what I thought was going to be the end of the match. A great false finish. It was a 2.8 count. Bailey came right back, hit another regular Bailey to belly for a 2.8 count. Bailey then attempted another Bailey to belly, a third one, one for Banks, two for Bailey with a chair on Sasha Banks' back, but she rolled out of it, slammed Bailey's face into the chair, then wrapped the chair around her neck, just like she did on Friday, locked her in the bank statement while kicking the seat of the chair up against her chin until Bailey tapped out. This, Chris, was an absolute freaking war. And the title change was no question the right move by every single measure. I don't care if someone had an issue with one part of the match or another. To me, it was a total gem. The only thing I wish that they had done was give Sasha Banks some pyro at the end to celebrate the title win while she was standing by the stage. But other than that, man, I really can't think of any other way to describe this than such good shit. No sarcasm, no exaggeration. This was such good shit. You know, my biggest flaw with the match was when Bailey hit a sunset flip powerbomb outside of the ring and throws Bailey into the side of the cell. Michael Cole yells, Hell in a cell. <laughs> and I just right. laughed. I just laughed when I heard that. It was so weird. It's like it's like that moment when they say the title of the movie in the movie, and it just I was like, just thinking that. Yep, <laughs> it takes you out for a second. I literally laughed when when I heard that. But but for this real, is going to be th- wait. This is going to be Armageddon. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. the, but seriously, awesome match. Four and a half stars, five stars, whatever. It was. It never felt slow. Like even when Bailey's like trying to tie the stuff with the duct tape and you don't know what she's doing and you don't know where it's going. It was still like intriguing enough where it wasn't like you check the clock and see how long this has been going on. It, it, it really, 
never felt like it was dragging. And that's hard to do in a Hell in a Cell in a violent match like this with two people because you need your breaks. And 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 they the pacing of this match was great. This was the most uh, most violent of the three matches, I think by far. The, the 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 Roman Jeyusa match was was I think brutal, but this was the most violent. I mean, when when when, yeah. when Sasha gets goes face first into the chair between the ropes, man, that looked that looked rough. When she she goes head first into the stairs, I was like, oh man, like it, it gets you. Like Sasha's always someone who really puts her body on the line for these things. And you always wonder if she's really going to get hurt. Uh, but I, I thought it was great. And, and honestly, uh, I thought commentary was fine, but I, I would have loved after what we got from Roman and Jay earlier, I would have loved if commentary kind of stayed out of this one as well, a little bit, let the women in there tell their story a little bit, which they did well, but I think it, it, it uh, they deserve that moment. It, it, this had built for so long. And they really nailed the finish. They pulled the trigger. They finally went through with, it, through with it. As long as we waited for them to try to get to this moment, and they executed it terrific. They did. And I think you make some really good points. Sasha laid out this entire match. And you mentioned the, the chair shot you know, to the front of the head. She also took one to the back of the head. You know, um, And the kendo stick shots and ev- the, the falling face first onto the kendo stick and then taking one to the chest. Everything... In that match, every step of it, you felt like Sasha was like, what else can I do? How else can I sell for Bailey? How else can I sell the brutality of this match? And it, it was very similar to the Becky Lynch-Sasha Banks match one year ago. I mean, it was mm-hmm. identical in, the ter- in terms of the viciousness and the violence and the intelligence, the way it was planned out and booked. You felt like a lot of care was given to this match. Now, I know Sasha had a large hand in it. I know Bailey had a large hand in it. I would love to know which agent was assigned to this match. And, and I would also be very curious to find out if it's the same agent who was assigned to the Becky Lynch, um, Sasha, Bank, Sasha Banks match a year ago, because they were just very similar to me. Now, this was great. And I agree with you that commentary should have laid out it also felt like once the match ended, it was somewhat anticlimactic. Like Michael Cole didn't really call the championship win as if it was as big of a deal as it really was. I was missing a call like a Jim Ross or a Mara Ronaldo there where she's tapping. Bailey is tapping and, and screaming, right? And Sasha Banks also, you know, to give her a slight little demerit, she kind of just sat back. And was just mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, I, wow, I, I did it. When she should have been maybe a little bit more jubilant and excited at what happened. So it just felt like, oh, the match ended and oh, Sasha Banks is the new champion. And she's not really celebrating. She just starts walking backstage and there's no pyro. Whereas like Reigns won his match earlier. We'll talk about that. And something happened after the match. Randy Orton won his match. And I expected something to happen also after that match. And nothing really happened. It felt like there should have been an epilogue to it. Or uh, is I don't even know, mm-hmm. is that epilogue before? Epilogue's after, prologue's before. Yeah, epilogue's after, prologue's before. It felt like there should have been an epilogue to it. And there just wasn't. So for me, the end was kind of flat. But I think credit needs to be given during the match to the finish in particular, which yes. had two incredible callbacks that I wanted to point out. 
The first was a callback to last year's Hell in a Cell, Becky Lynch, Sasha Banks, where Becky won the match by locking Sasha in the disarm her with a chair. So she used her submission with a chair. That's how she got the win. And then in the same spot, Banks is stomping on the chair. That's a callback to when Bailey stomped on Sasha Banks' hand back during the NXT Iron Woman match and ended up winning by doing that. Banks got over on Bailey by doing the same thing. Banks put such care and creativity into building her matches, into the development of them, how they are laid out. Bailey, too, she deserves equal credit. This thing to me, man, was just incredible. And as good as the match was, the finish is for me what put it over the top. Totally. Yeah, great, great finish. You, you got to like, in these big feuds that go on for a period of time and they have these climactic, you know, situations, you got to meet the moment. And, and you talk about commentary not selling it. I, I, I think really what's best about someone like Jim Ross or Morrow is even if they're annoying at times or slip up at times, when there's that moment, they always hit it. And you didn't get yeah. that with commentary, but you did get it with, Sasha and Bailey in that finish. That was a frantic, fun finish uh, all over the place, jumping over the ladder to, to the to the Meteora uh, onto the back turnbuckle. Just really frantic, fun, exciting finish that makes you pop at the end of a, you know, at the end of a really long match, you got to hit it because you need to send them, you know, like I said, send them home happy, send them home happy at the end of the match. And they hit that moment. Like, I get it, okay? There's not fans there, and it's not Kofi winning the title at WrestleMania, right? And Tom Phillips and Byron Saxon, by the way, both deserve a lot of credit for how they called that in that moment. But they did a less is more there. And that's okay, because the more is the crowd reaction. It's people crying their eyes out and hugging each other. So you don't need commentary. Here, you're in the damn Thunderdome. You need commentary to push the story on you. And by the way, not that I like the the, the piped-in chants, but they did a piped in chant for the actual main event of the show. And this is awesome chant. And like the match that was actually awesome that deserved that chant or the holy shit chant was the Sasha Banks and Bailey match. And it was just treated from almost a production standpoint, like it wasn't the main event. And, and maybe that's because it wasn't. And they wanted the, to sell the main event as the main event. But for me, this was the best match. Banks had a great moment after the match with her foot standing on top of Bailey, like on her shoulders, pushing her down. And if you watch Talking Smack on Friday, Sasha was in full tweener, legit boss mode, like kind of going into the match. So I hope that they keep her that way as champion. Banks also, by the way, she lost her first ever Hell in a Cell matches against Charlotte Flair and Becky Lynch. So now she finally won. Now, you guys well, know I've spoken. Those are, those are the only. And so there have been three women's Hell in the Cells, right? It's just those three. Ah, man. I, I, I feel like. Because I looked it up earlier because my brother had made a comment like it seems like she's in every one. And I looked it up and I'm pretty sure those are the only three. There was Charlotte, Sasha. Well, there was Becky. Well, Sasha. I was going to say, look at I was going to say, just look at the 2017 card because that would be three years ago and or four, I guess now. It was the 2016. And it was. Uh, yeah. Hell, yeah. You just look at the hell, at least at the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, so Sasha's been in all three. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty impressive. That's impressive. 2016, 2019, and 2020. So they skipped two years then? Yep. Yep. Wow. Okay. Yep. Yep. So those that's, are the That's only surprising three. that. Yeah. Those are the only three. 
That's surprising they skipped two years. I didn't realize that, but no, that is that is extremely impressive that she's been in all of them. She's now one and two, but she has that win, which helps make her, you know, somewhat complete. And you guys know I've spoken plenty about her short title reigns. I hope that they actually play that into the story now with yes. a Bailey rematch. I presume in December, because November is going to be Survivor Series brand versus brand. Bailey now finishes with a 380-day title reign, which is Crazy impressive. She was fantastic for the past year. Banks is now the third ever women's Grand Slam champion in WWE. But not only that, she's the first woman in WWE history to win the Raw, SmackDown, and Women's Tag Team Championships all in the same calendar year, which is insanely impressive when you actually think about that. So this is a huge moment for Sasha Banks, a deserved moment. For Sasha Banks, no, it has not come at a SummerSlam or at a WrestleMania. No, she has not won the Royal Rumble. But this is still pretty big. I do wonder where it goes. Do they play into the rematch situation where, not rematch situation, first title defense situation where Sasha Banks has never successfully defended a singles women's title in WWE? That could be a scenario where they book Bayley to get that opportunity in December, maybe Bailey even wins. And that remains the stigma, the albatross around Sasha Banks' neck, which then results in her having to win Royal Rumble, getting another opportunity at WrestleMania, winning the title at WrestleMania. I do think that is a feasible trajectory for this storyline. On the other hand, I'm like, you know what? If they just have her lose her first defense again, they have to know they're doing it but what does that really say about Sasha Banks? So I'm just of a weird mind about it. Like, I don't know if I want them to do it, to have her lose, or if I just want them to tell the story and have her overcome it right away and find a different challenger for Mania. Maybe maybe Bianca Belair. Sasha Banks, Bianca Belair would tear the house down. There's a lot of directions they can go. I don't know which way I'm leaning. Is there something you particularly want to say? I, I, I mean, long term, I think you set it up for Bianca Belair at WrestleMania. Um they're, they're clearly starting something with her. And I think this is the time of year now where you start to build her up and maybe she wins the rumble and gets you to that moment. Um, but in, in the short term, I do think you do a rematch probably at the December pay-per-view. I do think you build the entire thing around. Sasha has never successfully defended it. And um, I you probably have Sasha win that. Uh, so I, I think that would be best. But, you know, this feud in the women's division has changed a lot, you know, month to month, week to week, things kind of tweak. So we'll see what they do. But I I, th- I think it works out if you have, you know, brand versus brand and Survivor Series rematch in in in, uh, in December. And then you go on to the Rumble and on from there. So I think that would be the best uh, move from here. But th- this may not be the end of this feud, so to speak. But I got to say, this was this might be th- th- will certainly be up there for feud of the year. Start to yeah. finish, tremendous job by them. In, in the summer, Sasha and Bailey were like maybe the best thing going in pro wrestling when they were at their at their peak of this. Uh, great long term storytelling. They really dragged out. You kept thinking it was going to happen, and then they didn't. They slow played it. I know that the, the 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 crowd situation made it different, but they really got to this climactic moment on a high note. So, congrats to them. Tremendous job all around by everybody involved in in the in what's happened this year between them. Yeah, there's no question. Bailey and Sasha Banks will both be in our finalist grouping for Superstar of the Year. This feud will be in the finalist grouping 
for Feud of the Year. And this match, I think, has a shot to be in the finalist grouping for Match of the Year. So, I mean, this is just incredible stuff that we got to see. And there's no doubt for anyone who didn't believe once and for all, Sasha Banks has it. Now let's move on to the match that you believe should have main evented WWE Hell in a Cell. Another Hell in a Cell match, of course. Roman Reigns against Jey Uso in an I Quit match. So let's start with what happened Friday night on SmackDown, as we always do when there is a SmackDown before a pay-per-view, which these days is always. Uh, a live crowd, I thought, Chris, would have gone absolutely mental for the entire main event segment of SmackDown. From Jimmy Uso being under the mask backstage, to Jey Uso hitting the Samoan splash on Reigns, to the stipulation handed down, the Usos will either have to fall in line or see their family completely kicked out of the Samoan dynasty for generations to come. It was the perfect stipulation for what we said is needed. The Usos in the bloodline, behind Reigns, all of them probably as a heel unit. It's very much a mafia-type move on Roman Reigns' part to say, even if you're not going to comply, I am going to force you to comply. I thought it was a great go-home moment to get us to a pay-per-view. And one of the criticisms we've had of WWE for a lot of these pay-per-views recently, as good, of the pay- as, good as the pay-per-views have been, they haven't really sold them to us on TV. They haven't really said, here's the go-home moment that if this pay-per-view was $49.99, would make you want to buy the show. This moment would have made me want to buy the show. Yes, I, I I thought that 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 go home segment on SmackDown was great, and man, just I, I've said it for a few few weeks now. But every time Roman comes out, it's like I gotta I gotta see what he's gonna do. I, I'm I'm closing my laptop. I want to see what the segment's gonna be, and that that sells you this show. You know the the, the way they set it up, knowing this was gonna happen. I would have bought this pay per view just to watch this match. The the promo right. was great going into it. You know, it's only been a two month type of feud here, but man, you can, you can feel this one. They, they are just, it is the perfect story for these guys. They're executing it and they, they take you into this match here uh, where when I saw it was going to open the show, I was like, Whoa, okay. Like we're, we're starting off for real here. I got, I got to get ready and pay attention. I think it should have main evented. It main evented clash of champions. I think this was the hottest thing going into the show which is why I would have main evented it. I get doing Sasha Bailey because it has that long-term story. I wouldn't have complained if it wasn't. You know, we just both disagree on what the actual one was. But this was such a great build coming into it. And then the match itself leaves you just kind of speechless once like, speechless once again, just like the last one, I think. Yeah, it did. And that's good kind of foreshadowing into our discussion of the match. But you, But you're right, though. I think you probably agree with me when I say this, and I'll give you a second. Either of these matches, Sasha Banks Bailey, Roman Reigns Jey Uso, would have been a better would have been better slotted in the main event. Hundred percent. Okay, so it's it's really an either or. But like I said, I'm the host, so I get to talk about mine first. That's just how it works. There are small benefits to being the host of the show. That is one of them. But let's get to the pay per view itself. This was the first I Quit match in WWE in five years, which. I always talk about commentary telling us a story, giving us extra information. They did that. I have to give credit where it's due. Thank you very much. Um, it's impressive, in my opinion, for them to hold off the stipulation for that long, considering how many stipulation matches WWE has. The fact that you haven't had one in five years 
in my opinion, pretty damn cool. There wasn't a lot of action, though, in this match compared to the first one, but it was definitely more emotional and brutal, with Reigns hitting three spears early, or hitting two spears early, going for a third, it turning into a strap match out of nowhere, so all of a sudden, we got like a third stipulation added. Jay completely choked Reigns out with the strap. Reigns screamed that he'd break Jay's neck, even if he didn't quit while in the guillotine, but he still didn't quit. Reigns hit that brutal drive-by move, the ring apron drop kick with Jay's head between the steel steps and the ring post. The referee tried to stop the match. Reigns tossed him out of the ring. By the way, I think the guy hurt himself. Uh, he got like carted off afterward. So I hope the referee is okay. More refs, WWE officials came in to stop Reigns. He chased them all out of the ring. He wrapped the steps around Jey Uso's head like a neck brace and talked shit down to him. It was really cool that he wasn't just trapping him, but he was literally talking down to him. I just thought that was such a cool picture and just such a, a smart kind of way to book that. But he does that just like he did talk shit all match. They both did. He raises the steps to crush basically Jay's head in, I assume. Jimmy runs in for the save just like he did last month. He starts using all of their real names, tells Reigns everything can be fixed. Everything's going to be okay. He doesn't know emotionally what's going on with him. Reigns then breaks down and starts to cry as Jimmy begs for no more. They begin hugging. Reigns says, enough with the hugging, locks Jimmy Uso in the guillotine. Jay finally wakes up and quits to save his brother. The Usos were then just kind of staring at him in total disbelief as he celebrated, walked up the ramp, and the crowning achievement of this damn match. I said it. I wanted a little extra. I wanted an epilogue after Sasha Banks and Bailey. We got it here. Roman Reigns walking up the ramp with Afa and Sika waiting for him to crown him the tribal chief, pretty much to the shock of the Usos. This thing kept reaching different levels. It was not necessarily a great wrestling match, but it was a masterwork of storytelling. Paul Heyman, whoever else was involved in this, should be really proud of themselves. This was epic. This is professional wrestling. This may not have been quote-unquote five stars, but it was an A, just like their match was last month. Kudos to WWE, kudos to Roman Reigns and the Usos, and holy crap, it was awesome to see Alpha and Sika there at the end of the match. Dude, I'm getting I'm getting goosebumps from you just retelling yeah. what happened in that All match. right, I like that. That's great. I, That's awesome. I, I just think, thinking about every, just reliving everything that just happened a few hours ago. Man, this was perfect. They just keep raising the emotional stakes more and more and more. And Roman, you know, we, we love him being serious. He's been good on the mic. He's talking like a mafia boss. And then to break out the crying and he sells this. And Jimmy's saying, whatever you're going through, we can do, we can fix this. And Roman's just like, I, I just like, I got to do this. I don't know what I should do here. Just, I a hundred percent bought into it. And I'm going to make another Star Wars reference here. <laughs> Force Awakens, Kylo Ren and Han Solo at Starkiller Base on the catwalk or whatever. Whatever Kylo Ren has gone to the dark side, but his dad is trying to bring him back, saying, come back to the family. We can get through this. And instead, Kylo Ren stabs Han Solo, his father, and kills him and says, thank you, I needed that. Completing his turn to the dark side, ignoring what later happens on in that trilogy. This was Roman fully embracing 
the turn to the dark side by doing what he did to Jimmy and accepting his role, his birthright as the tribal chief. Just, ah, man. And, and just, you know, there was a lot of shit talking in the first match and you, you weren't sure if they were going to able to, to up it in the second one. And they do. And Roman's saying stuff like, you know, since we were kids, you knew I was better and, and, and stuff like this. Just, man, this was, you know, it's not a five-star match. This was a five-star moment, though. Like, man, yes. this was yes. th- this this was one of the, like, most emotional wrestling moments of the year to me. The way that thing ended. I just, I was in awe. They keep taking this to a, to to another level. Uh, I don't know what's happening next, but just for, for this night, oh man, they, they absolutely killed it. It's a great take, but obviously for the Star Wars reference, zero. I mean, no, I'm, I'm lying. Some people I know really like Star Wars, so that probably meant something to them. To me, it means absolutely nothing, but it sounded good, so I appreciate that. Uh, but no, you're right, man. The analysis was good there. You're, you're, we saw something here that, yeah, we saw it last month. You know, it was it was very similar. Let's not go crazy here. It was very similar to last month. But somehow they figured out a way to take it up another level. And Jey Uso said in an interview this week or last week, I forget which, that this was supposed to be a one month feud. So the fact that they extended it an entire second month and was it somewhat repetitive a little bit? Yes, but it didn't feel repetitive. You know, and, no. and for them to give us this match with the finish and then the coronation afterward that coronation sold everything else that happened before of it. And yeah. now when the expectation of Jay Uso and Jimmy Uso getting in line happens, you're not just thinking of them as weak. You're thinking of them as following along and being part of the Samoan dynasty and the bloodline. And they just saw Offa and Sika crown Roman reigns. So he didn't just get over on his contemporaries, on his peers. He won the trust of leader, of family leadership from the two patriarchs. So you, if you're the Usos, it's not a heel move or a chicken shit move to now follow Roman Reigns. It's your duty. It's the right thing to do. So I absolutely loved it. I thought it was genius. It's also notable, of course, that Jimmy was the one who basically quit kind of twice you know, he, I think he threw in the towel the first time or, or ran in to save Jay the first time. Mm-hmm. He basically was the catalyst for Jay quitting here. It also, this match, served the purpose of the original Hell in a Cell. I know they eventually opened the door so people could run in. I understand. But the purpose of Hell in a Cell when it was first created was to trap two people in the ring inside an enclosed structure where they would have nowhere to go and had to decide and end a feud. And that's what this was. It was the end point for a feud in a brutal structure between two people who had no other choice but to compete under these rules. Not just Hell in a Cell, but I Quit thrown on top of it. And I gotta say, the idea of I Quit being inside Hell in a Cell, if this was not an annual pay-per-view where you know you're gonna have two or three matches, I would love for that to be the stipulation of Hell in a Cell. Yeah, that was great. Like, the, the, like you knew it wasn't going to be like, oh, somebody's trapped in something and they have to quit because they're backstage right. and doing something weird or, or whatever. You knew that the only way somebody was going to quit was because it was going to be something brutal in the context of a wrestling match. 
was happening. And I know that it was a little bit different because somebody else came into the match, but like that was, I had, I had never thought of that, like a stipulation within a stipulation match. And it was a, it it was, it was a perfect stipulation for, for that kind of match and the story. It really was in every possible way. And that's just why I loved it so much. I'm also glad that, and I'm, I'm prefacing this a little bit because we're going to talk about the third match coming up, but it's the, it's, we went two years in a row with really screwy, really shitty Hell in a Cell finishes. We did not get a single one on this show. You may not have liked certain elements of them, but all three of these were clean. All three of these told a story or advanced a story. And I think WWE, when we criticize them frequently, they deserve a lot of credit. This combination of I Quit and Hell in a Cell, again, with a sprinkle, a little sprinkle on top of a strap match, it worked. And I thought they deserved the credit for it. Now, we do have a DM slide here from Eldred Ryan at Acme, A-K-M-E, Tunes. He says, you know what's great about Roman Reigns' heel turn? Roman, more than anyone could have had his heel turn, actually be based on fans not having his back, which is basically what all heel turns end up being in WWE. But this one, he says, is all about family being the head of the household. Kudos of them for not taking the easy road. And they didn't. And I think that truly played out in this match. That's why I wanted to highlight his DM because it could, they could have gone to that at any point, but they really solidified what the storyline was on Sunday night. Yeah. And, and, and on Roman, like I know we say every week that like he's killing it and doing great, but like this is the best work of his career. Like he is, this is one reason I, I, I thought this should be the main event of the show is that like he has now, turned himself like into the face of the company. Like the, the thing they always wanted him to be a main event guy who everybody's paying attention to. And you can't look away from like, he, he is that now. And, and McIntyre is kind of floundered a bit in the, in the Randy Orton feud. Like there's, there's no fans to react to Roman. So everything's kind of like paused. And I do think not having fans has helped this for Roman, like you wouldn't have the talking and all that kind of stuff. It's really, you know, we talked about like, like way at the beginning of the pandemic, like who has been aided most by not having uh, a crowd or who's been aided most by what's going on in terms of character. And it's, it's without a doubt Roman right now, because this type of stuff would not have been able to slowly build because you have fans cheering him because he was a heel, you know, and then it turns into a whole chanting a hole, a hole. Yeah. Type of stuff. So like, it's just, you you can only the only story we are getting is the story he is telling and he is telling it beautifully and this is the guy five six seven whatever years ago that Vince McMahon thought he's a guy who can carry a show he's a guy who can be the face of the company he has met that moment right now it's really well put on your part I think the counter I would have to it is while Vince deserves credit for recognizing that this is the guy. Roman Reigns is the guy, right? He said that, I'm not a guy, I'm the guy. But his success right now has come at the one thing Vince didn't want to do, which was turn him heel. And it's the same resistance that he had with John Cena, where had he turned Cena heel at some point, he would have gotten even more over as a face but he never did it. 
And the, the thing I've been saying about Roman Reigns from the very beginning of me ever doing podcasting was if you are able to turn him heel successfully, when he comes back as a face, he's going to be massively over. He may not be The Rock, but he's going to be probably John Cena level or somewhat close to it. And if you want that guy, then you need to book them in a storyline that creates that type of momentum behind them eventually being faced. Like you could see a scenario down the line, a year, 18 months, where all these guys are still together and something happens with the Usos or something happens with Reigns and they wrap because, because of a really big heel and they rally together and have each other's back as family. Reigns comments, guys, I know how this all happened. Started with us, wasn't the best, but I really appreciate you guys being by my side and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, they're a face group. It's really easy to make that turn as long as you have the right heel to help you. So now it's about WWE thinking, which they don't always do, thinking 12, 18 months in the future and and trying to figure out what is this storyline going to be? How is it going to end? And when it does end, who is going to be that person that kicks this into that other gear and turns Roman Reigns in the right direction? My only concern about this is that while it's great now, they may not have that end goal in mind. Even if it changes down the line, they should already have it in mind. So I'm just really curious to see how that eventually will play out. But for right now, this storyline, Roman Reigns, is the number one thing going in American professional wrestling, really any professional wrestling. This is my number one storyline right now. And I think Roman Reigns, despite not being active for five months of the year, not competing in a WrestleMania planned main event in which he was most likely supposed to win the title. I think he has now vaulted himself into the conversation. We have two months left for wrestler of the year. Yeah, it'll be tough. It kind of depends on how much you want to weigh longevity and total body of work as opposed to a limited amount of time. But man, he is... If you were to just go like pick anybody's two, three months out of the year, nothing comes close to what he's doing. So moving on to the third part of our main event, we had Drew McIntyre against Randy Orton for the Universal Championship. In this one, Orton tried to attack McIntyre before he even entered the cell. McIntyre got the upper hand, dominated Orton all over the ringside area early, even used the stairs on him. Orton finally stopped McIntyre by countering a Claymore with a chair shot to McIntyre's knee. The match was on from there. Thought it was slow until that point. That's when it kind of picked up. It was a bit tough to get juiced for this match, Chris, considering the first two Hell in a Cell matches and how slow this one started, even though... Orton brutalized McIntyre outside and and started kind of getting a little bit more aggressive. Before I kind of continue here, I just felt probably a third of the way into this match that I kind of already knew it wouldn't live up to main event status, if that makes sense. I was not so much worn down by the matches that preceded it, but both of them were so good. And the way this one started, I just kind of sat there to myself and kind of said, yeah, this is just going to be a pretty typical WWE Hell in a Cell match. Also, they led into it by talking about Undertaker, Survivor Series, Hell in a Cell, and then they come back and they've got fire shooting up and they're bringing down the, the cage. And it's like, you can't you can't start hyping up the cage now. We've already seen two matches right. in it. Like, 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 you, like, you're not selling us anything here. So that was, that was also a little bit weird. 
Yeah, you're right. So Orton kind of brutalized McIntyre outside. He raked his face into the cell, threw him into the steel steps that were standing in the corner. Business picked up once McIntyre started making a run. He hit a couple overhead belly-to-belly suplexes in the ring and another through a table outside the ring. McIntyre kicked out at one after a draping DDT. Orton was shocked all of a sudden, grabbed some bolt cutters, cut open the door, and next thing you know, he is climbing to the top of the cell. McIntyre follows him. They get to the top. By the way, it always, I tweeted this, it always impresses me that these guys can wrestle for like 15 minutes and exert all the energy they exert. And I know there's footholds on the side, but just climb up a 20-foot cell and then kind of climb back down. Like, I don't know. It, to me, it's impressive that you can do, it's, the wrestling is impressive, but being able to do that in the middle of a match, to me, is pretty impressive as well. Also, get climbing, up, oh, wait, also, climbing down is way harder. Like, you, is it? especially like, like anytime I'm up in the attic and I got to come down off the ladder, like, cause. Oh, good point. Cause you, you, you gotta like weigh your upper body and try to find where to put your feet and you're dangling a little bit. Like, and you're blind. Easy, yeah. You're, yeah, you're blind. It's, kind it's of, easy, yeah. yeah. It's easy when you're on the ground going up. So just low key, that'd be pretty scary trying to climb down off that thing. You make actually a pretty great point there. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that the fact that you're doing it blind and it's 20 feet. And even though, you know, in this situation, someone was supposed to take a fall, it's one person that's supposed to take a fall. And if you fall straight down, you're effed, you know, it, it, the table yeah. is padded for a reason. Like it's, it's purposefully done that way, built up that way. So anyway, so they, uh, there's a baton up there of some sort, a lead pipe. They don't even use it. They're I thought it was. I like, thought it was a. I thought it was a lightsaber. Lightsaber, because it, yeah, so it was weird. red, right? Was it painted yeah, red? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I but, didn't know uh, what it look, was, and then they just uh, there it is, and it's gone, and you don't even address it. It was super weird. I'm gonna call a 30 second timeout. They got to get rid of the red cell and all the red gimmick. When it was a yes. raw pay per view, when the, when it was a raw pay per view, and they wanted it to be red, I'm fine with it. It is not a raw pay per view. It is a multi brand pay per view. It should be steel colored or black. Right? Am I right about this? Like, just go back to it. It's ugly. Yes. After after the pay-per-view, they did a WWE Untold with Randy Orton and Undertaker feud from like 04 or something like that. And one of the matches was a Hell in a Cell back in like one of the original Hell in a Cell. So it's like shorter. But all of a sudden, like I saw Hell in a Cell with a, a, a silver, gray, whatever. I was like, whoa, that I forgot about that. That looks like way... It looks way more serious. It looks, uh, not, I don't know, scarier, but it looks, you know, more intimidating. So yeah, get ri- get rid of the red, please. Yeah, they have to. They just have to. But they're up there like a grand total. It felt like a 45 seconds. So they climbed all the way up on the cell to dodge a lead pipe. And then they just start climbing down. And I'm like, I, I was concerned. Two- I, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's, I was just going to say, at least do like an overhead belly to belly suplex since you're doing them, you know, as many as you want. At least do one of those up there or do something. Hit an RKO up there. Do something. And they just didn't. They just kind of dodged it and then started climbing down. I got to say, when they went up, I was uh, I was wondering if they were going to get struck by lightning in that Thunderdome <laughs> based, on, based on how it all starts with the, 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 the at the beginning. I was like, oh, man, they're yeah. getting pretty closer. So uh, I was wondering if uh, something was going to happen. But alas... It did not. There yeah. was no lightning. It did. It it did not. They start climbing down. McIntyre takes a couple headers into the cell, and then he flies off and does the Shane McMahon spot, which basically has to happen every time there's a Hell in a Cell or a cage match these days. I'm getting sick of it. Um, I think it was 
impressive that Drew McIntyre took that bump. So because of that, it almost, I'm grading it on a curve. It was really cool to see him do it. Had it been anyone else, it kind of would have been like, you know, I've seen this a million times, but he did it. He starts bleeding from the mouth. McIntyre basically looks like he's dead. He gets one last gasp of energy, hits Orton with the Claymore. Orton smartly rolls out of the ring. Then McIntyre stalks him for another one. Orton takes a dive flat on his back, jumps back up, hits the RKO for the win to become the 14-time world heavyweight champion. Now, I'm not going to say this was a great match. I'm not going to say it was an all-time memorable Hell in a Cell match, but it was good. They protected McIntyre well by the fall and his burst at the end, looking like he would still overcome the obstacles. They kept the RKO strong for the new champion by not having McIntyre kick out of it. That was really smart. We discussed in our ultimate preview that Randy Orton, over basically this entire year, was booked way too strong to be in a title feud with Drew McIntyre and not walk out with the title at some point. I still think it would would have been better for them to do it during the ambulance match and never do a rematch. They wanted to do it here. They wanted to extend it one more month. I thought ultimately it was totally fine. Randy Orton has an established history with Hell in a Cell. He won Hell in a Cell. It's not a huge loss for McIntyre, even though I think we are all so happy for him that he had such a successful championship run, despite all the obstacles that he faced. But nevertheless, you know, this was good. I think this was a good, successful match. I I, I thought it was it was fine. It was serviceable. It was replacement level. It was everything you've seen in a generic Hell in a Cell match, down to literally falling off the side of the cage, which I've done a million times. I thought it was fine. I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was great. I'm just, coming into it, I was just so over this feud. I was just, I did not get into the match at all. I, I, I it should have, the title should have changed in the ambulance match last, uh, last pay-per-view, whichever one that was. Um, just they get they got to do something else now. This has been like three or four months of these guys, and and it's it's not a match. It's not a, a pairing I've been super into anyway. And we're seeing them beat each other up every week, so it's not like any of this is fresh. The the the, the final the finish was I thought pretty cool. You know, dropping on his back was quick snap up and get him. I thought that was kind of cool. It got me at the end. But other than that, I just I did not care about this match at all. I, have not cared about this feud for a while, and I want them to move on to do something else here. Yeah, I mean, Drew McIntyre coming right back in this feud does not work. And the question is, what the hell does Drew McIntyre do now? Because you've built this guy up so much, and he's still on the same show. So how exactly do you book him in a different feud? Do you have him go right down to the United States title feud and feud with Bobby Lashley? Or do you just try to figure out something else for him to do with a Braun Strowman or a Keith Lee? That's my guess is they're going to just try to keep him strong with all the other hosses they have now on Raw. They're just going to have maybe like a super heavyweight type of division. But I mean, I just don't know where McIntyre goes. I don't know who becomes Orton's top challenger. Maybe Keith Lee does. It's a unique circumstance and it's it's a booking that I wanted to happen. I just don't know how it resolves itself. Yeah, I mean, we we thought Orton was going to win even going back to what was it, SummerSlam, because he had had a hell of a first half of 2020. We, he was wrestler of the year halfway through the year. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. Is it, you know, we, we, we've we said we don't want The Fiend immediately getting back into a title feud, but does he try to avenge his 
WrestleMania 33 loss to Randy Orton or, or something like that. I, I, I don't mm-hmm. know. There's a few ways they could go. I, I, I'd love to see like Drew McIntyre maybe like get in a tag team with Keith Lee or something and just like wreck shop for like a month or two or before doing something else just to like keep him have him doing something different keep him make him feel fresh make him look good I I don't know I the tag team division is obviously nothing but uh very very curious to see where either of these two go I just really hope it's away from each other I do think the expectation ultimately with Randy Orton is that he will defend the title at WrestleMania uh, probably against Edge and in the conclusion of that feud with Edge winning the title, but they need to get there. And yes, you're right. Like the Fiend Randy Orton makes all the sense in the world. How do they inject that without the Fiend winning? Or if they do have the yeah. Fiend winning, then we're back in the same situation we used to be in with the Fiend as champion yep. when the Fiend never needs to be champion. So there's just a lot of questions here on this feud more than any other of the Helena Cell matches on what you do going forward. I think the other ones have pretty clear direction. Reigns, Needs a new challenger. He could probably be probably even spend an entire month without a new challenger, just kind of working with the Usos, trying to get them to join the fold. And I'm sure WWE is going to do a sneak attack from SmackDown at some point on Raw, Raw on SmackDown. You know, they're going to start working up to Survivor Series. But once that ends, the question is what happens with Reigns. But really, the question is what happens with Randy Orton and Drew McIntyre. So couple more matches here to break down. Uh, Otis defending his money in the bank briefcase against The Miz. We have to start on SmackDown with Law and Otis. I turned the corner on this feud. I think it was last week. And even if I had not, I would have here because there is no question to me that this It really was from the start, honestly, with APA running the court, Miz filing a complaint, Otis representing himself with the simplest defense ever. I won, so I'm the winner. Uh, <laughs> John Morrison, Rey Mysterio, Tucker, and specifically Asuka being hysterical on the witness stand. Teddy Long making a cameo as a stenographer and JBL ultimately being bought off by a suitcase presumably filled with cash. I don't mind the match or the stipulation, because it's been established both in WWE and elsewhere in New Japan that such contracts can be put on the line in matches like this. I thought that segment on SmackDown was good, old-school wrestling comedy. It's something that you would have seen in the 90s. It's something you would have seen in the 2000s or the 2010s, and now we're seeing it in the 2020s. It was just a big win. Law and Otis, two thumbs up. Yeah, it was... um... A bit of a crossover there with the People's Court theme and the Law and Order logo. <laughs> I did, I did notice that. Yeah, <laughs> but no, this was funny. Like Otis is just—he's a funny guy. John Morrison is really good at like the dumb funny. I—I I, I don't think Miz has been great in this because he's like—he's better when he's like serious and and mad and thinks he deserves something. When he's trying to be funny, it comes off as acting. It, I know he's like trying to be an actor, but honestly, Morrison, I think, plays the dumb funny a lot, a lot better. Uh, great segment. I loved El Gran Gordo the, the, the previous Monday. Um, I, I would love I always think Money in the Bank should be on the line more frequently. You know, it's just like it's almost like another title. Like if you're going to have it go for a while, put it on the line a few times. I think back to Ziggler when Ziggler and Cena put it up um up for grabs and AJ turned on Cena and joined Ziggler. 
whatever that was eight, nine years ago. Like you can do a lot of things. I like, I liked that they put it on the line. Um, I uh, was not happy with the final result though. Well, yeah, let's get into that. So at the pay-per-view, Otis had a promo before the match. I thought the promo was actually really good. Strong stuff from Otis there. And his new entrance totally worked for me. I thought it was better than the old one. It was very 90s WWE, like a theme from Jim Johnson. Otis is basically a 90s WWE wrestler in terms of his gimmick. So I thought the new entrance and all that stuff fit really well. Uh, John Morrison got ejected midway through the match. And it looked like Otis was going to win after hitting Miz with the discus clothesline. Then suddenly out of nowhere, Tucker drills Otis with the briefcase and Miz pins him to win the Money in the Bank briefcase. So there's obviously a couple takes on this. Let's start with the decision itself to pull the briefcase off Otis. This is not the first time it's happened in WWE. So precedent had been set. So I'm not going to get upset that WWE killed kayfabe because they gave someone a briefcase and took it away. That's happened before. It's fine that it was booked to happen in terms of it is something legitimately in WWE kayfabe and canon that can happen. So no issues there. Miz holding the briefcase is obviously better than Otis from a technical standpoint because Miz is at least a believable potential champion. But this continues my issue with the booking of Money in the Bank this year. I have stressed numerous times on this show how important Money in the Bank is for getting talent over. The idea is to put it on new superstars who you want to actually become champion. And with Asuka, she was a veteran who kind of didn't need it, but she won it. It became the championship. So that briefcase, that gimmick of her being able to cash it in got wasted. That's another thing that's interesting. The surprise element of potential cash-ins with the briefcase adds something to WWE television and pay-per-views because it can happen at any given time. So we don't get any of that with Otis. There was a semi-minor tease cash-in back when Brock Lesnar was champion. Not Brock Lesnar, Braun Strowman was champion. But other than that, he never even attempted to cash in. And once there was no hint that he might. Otis won the briefcase, but did not get elevated from the briefcase. And he never cashed it in, as I said. This was just a total 100% waste of a gimmick, like I said, that is meant to get people over. So I did not mind the the Miz winning from a storyline standpoint or a kayfabe standpoint. I significantly, drastically, seriously mind the way WWE has booked Money in the Bank in 2020. We we had it out uh, on Money in the Bank night where I was a big fan of Otis getting it and you were very much not. And I don't, I don't think this necessarily means you're right, not that you're saying that, but they clearly did not have a plan. You know, you you don't change it now. You don't go through everything he's done. You don't not have teases if they didn't have a plan. They gave it to him. They did not have a plan. They didn't know where he if he was going to do it for the tag belts, if he was going to do it for a world title or, or maybe another title. That was kind of the question. And... They just didn't do anything with it and apparently have new plans. I I think it was if they did not have plans and no, it was they shouldn't have given it to Otis. I think it could have elevated Otis. They just didn't do anything with it. So this didn't work, but I don't put that on Otis. I put that on the booking and the clear lack of planning. And it's a real shame because I think Otis is 
is is really talented. He's funny. He can he he had a good serious. He's side not in, a in champion. The, he's not a the, world well, champion. They they didn't no, and they did not do a good job of building out to to make you think he could be. They didn't do but that. But he, at he all. never would have been built into one because he's not one. He could have become the Mick Foley was a champion, multiple time champion. Like you can do this. Mick Foley had a sustained career of greatness and main event matches with big talent, big Mick, names. Mick Foley was a was an older guy who was at that time in that context mostly known for getting thrown off of a cage and putting his body through hell. Like but it was Mick Foley. Oh, the whole, the Foley. whole point. The whole point of Mick Foley as champion was that he's not the face of the company. That was the storyline. That's why. Yes, he but, but, Mick Foley, but Mick Foley was at, at the before he won the title as likely to be champion as a Kofi or as maybe before he won the first title of Daniel Bryan. But he's someone who you could at least see with the championship I, around their waist. I don't today. I, 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 I disagree today, in that. I disagree, and that's why it was such a big deal and, and such a big pop when he won it. They, he was specifically not the guy, and they and that was the story. They could have done something with Otis. They did he, nothing he, with they did nothing with Otis, and that's the real shame of it all is that they didn't even try to do something. But Chris, he was a guy who had been in the position, meaning he had title matches before. He had been in main event feuds or had been feud feuded previously with main eventers. He was a name. People wore his gear and merchandise. They liked him. He was over. Otis, despite having a storyline with Mandy that people enjoyed, was not over. He had never held a tag team. I don't even know if Mick had held a tag team title before that moment, but he had never been someone who was even in consideration to be in a title match. He is not someone who you would put the title on and go out to do the, all the things that Roman Reigns talks about you do, and Drew McIntyre talks about that you do as a WWE or Universal Champion. So he Otis was just never that person, and it has nothing to do with his look or anything. It's his gimmick. It's a 90s WWE gimmick in 2020, and there's nothing wrong with that. Otis should be in WWE. He's talented. He's entertaining. He's exciting. He's funny. You know, he's good, but he's not a world champion. So for them to have even given him the briefcase in the first place made no sense because you knew he would never be champion, even if he got to cash it in. And instead, they didn't even have him attempt to cash it in really beyond, like I said, the minor tease with Braun Strowman. They didn't give any indication that this guy was seriously being treated as a singles competitor because he never really got away from Tucker until it was too late. And that's part of what I want to say about Tucker. He came back with a solid promo here also and some logical reasoning for turning on Otis. But everything they did with Otis and Tucker was backwards. They gave Otis the briefcase, then split up one of their few, and, and, and in doing so, split up one of their few tag teams. Then they split them up in the draft. Like, they, they split them up just because Otis was concentrating more on singles. It was pretty obvious. But then they physically split them up in the draft, and then they created the conflict after the fact with Tucker, after they were already split up on different brands. Now they're creating a feud between Otis and Tucker, but they're on different brands and there's no <laughs> yeah. cross-brand integration promo. This is all happening a month later than it needed to to split them up before you draft them to different shows. So now you have Otis, Chris, with no money in the bank, no Mandy Rose, and no tag team partner. Otis now, he might be funny, he's worthless. Credit to Tucker for cutting a good, good work shoot promo, but this was a that was a small bright spot on what was otherwise a big piece of shit 
booking. They don't know how to get people over. And when they try or they or Vince McMahon says, hey, you know what? Let's throw the briefcase on Otis. Like you said, they had no plan whatsoever. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. That's how much chance Otis had on getting over. Zero. Z- in terms of in terms of a champion. He's over. People like him. They might buy a heavy machinery shirt or a funny thing with him and Mandy, but he is not over and never was going to be over enough to be a champion. So you can make the comparisons to Mick Foley. And I, I, I'm not trying to kind of like berate you here, but, but <laughs> it, he's not comparable. He's just not because Mick Foley was at least in a position and, and marketable because of his story and to a level where you could put the title on him. There was nothing about Otis, even if they put all of their might and effort into building him up over the last five months. There was nothing that they could have done to make him believable as champion. And therefore, the money in the bank briefcase being with him wasted him and wasted the briefcase. I'm done. It was was completely a waste. And he does absolutely look worthless now. And going into a apparent feud with his tag team partner who's jealous, which is like literally, which also came i think right after this uh, after the sasha bailey thing so we went from like best friend tag team broke up to another best friend tag team broken up oh also the mandy feud the, the thing with mandy earlier in the year was otis involved in something that was best friends who broke up and it's like it's the easiest simplest storyline trope in the world and not at all looking forward to an otis tucker storyline and i'm very concerned about what uh they apparently plan or don't have planned for Otis. I I just, I wish they would have given it a shot. Tease it. Talk about him. He he thinks he can be world champion. He's he's trying to do stuff. He can do some funny skits. He's trying to get in better shape. He's trying to to, to, to be a guy who could be the face right. of the company. Have some fun with it. And if it's not, and if it's not, and if it's not clicking, if, if the YouTube videos are low, if the ratings are low when that happens, if nobody cares, then then go away from him and do something like that. My problem yes. is that they just they didn't yes. even try. That that's the biggest that's the biggest frustration with all this. You do you're right. You do the workout plan type of stuff where he tries to get in shape to be a champion and not just physical shape but mental shape where he starts competing and starts surprisingly beating people and it seems like he's getting built up. Yeah. And maybe while you're doing all of that, the Miz is screwing with him and he's adding extra weight where Otis then doesn't think he can do it or he's you know, giving him extra food where Otis is maybe struggling to eat broccoli for once or something like that, right? And you do all of it, and then you have Miz fully sabotage him and take the briefcase off of him. You Maybe you even have Miz blow up a couple of his cash-in attempts. All of those things they could have done and at least turned Otis into a mid-carder. Yeah. Where he could then go after a mid-card title. But yep. he's a low-carder. You put They put the briefcase on a low-carder and now they've taken it off of him without a cash in, and he's still a low carder. The difference is he started as a guy who was in a tag team who theoretically could have won a tag team title and legitimately was in a good tag team with Ode, with uh, Tucker. And now he doesn't even have that. So they've just absolutely shit all over Otis. WWE, we talk about it all the time. They've struggled with their tag team depth. And what they've done in the last two months is they've split up six tag teams, three male, three female. And it's just... And this is where we sit and there's no, there's no defending it. It's, I, I didn't mind the match. I didn't, I actually thought the match was okay. And I didn't mind the Miz winning the promos, Miz's promo, Tucker's promo and Otis's promo were all very good, 
but somehow in something I liked very much, it was still a pile of crap. Poor Otis. Speaking of a pile of crap, the United States Championship, Bobby Lashley <laughs> defeating Slapjack. Now, again, some credit where it's due for promos because the promos for Mustafa Ali, which I think was on the kickoff show, and then MVP, which happened right before the match, they were both really solid. Ali did a way better job of explaining Retribution's motivations, while MVP and Hurt Business, they cracked the obvious jokes and pretty good jokes about Retribution's stupid names and Slapjack's stupid mask. It makes sense in storyline that a faction would pick their strongest competitor against the other side's weakest. But it is horrible booking to have Retribution now basically be 0-2 and really go three matches without a win. Slapjack got a little bit of offense in. I mean, Shane Thorne was on a pay-per-view, so like that's pretty cool that Shane Thorne was on a pay-per-view. But against Lashley, you knew it was never a contest. So Lashley wins with the Hurt Lock. Retribution attacks after the match. They're, they're ba- the entire time they're attacking him, they're looking and waiting for Hurt Business to run out. Ali calls for the lights out. I guess it's like a double choke slam move. But they don't even get to hit it because Hurt Business comes out for the save. So Retribution got torn down backstage verbally, lost a match, and didn't get Retribution <laughs> on Lashley for beating their guy. This was a piece of shit. Otis... I just dislike what they did, and I feel like they did him a disservice and the money in the bank a disservice. This. Zero point zero. Yeah, I just, following the last couple weeks of Raw, they, it, uh, the retribution just looks like chumps. And, and like there have, I keep saying this, but like there have been moments where they've given you a reason to take them seriously and it starts to go somewhere and then they just, don't and, and completely flop. And this was just another, I, I, I don't think they can go anywhere from here at this point. I, I'm just about out on, out, out on any chance they have at fixing this. I, I don't know. It's just very weird. It was very clearly just something to, to fill time. And yet once again, they, they, nobody comes out of it looking any good. It's just, it's like they're the job squad or DOA, as I've said previously, without a DX, or Nation of Domination. It's like the Hurt Business is not a dominant faction. So you can't just have them be the jobbers off the bat. And they still need to get a couple wins. They got to do something. But Retribution's basically, it just feels like it's completely dead in the water. And it's their fault because when they put Ali in front as the face of it now and the voice of it now, it has second life. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of saying, man, they can maybe do something with Retribution. But they just can't. It, it, I think it's dead. Uh, Elias defeated Jeff Hardy in another one of the popcorn matches. Just being candid, I was a little bit distracted during this match, but most of what I saw was relatively uneventful until Hardy finally stood on top of that ring post and you're thinking something's going to happen. But we don't even get a payoff because Elias rolls off the ring apron, grabs a guitar, Hardy kicks him, steals the guitar, hits him with it, gets a disqualification. Everything about this screamed WWE television from how it was wrestled, to the finish, this should not have been on a pay-per-view and they could have come up with something better. At least the Otis mismatch belonged on a pay-per-view due to the stipulation and because of a turn, you know, heel turn and all the other developments they had around it. But the Retribution match and this match, these were television matches, raw matches on a mediocre three-hour show that they put on a pay-per-view. 
Technically, I uh, I was right in my pick because I picked Elias, and I think you picked Jeff Hardy, and technically Elias won this match. But man, like you take could, the W, enjoy the W <laughs> on this one. <laughs> you could. This was a hundred percent just a TV segment, and you think about like all the titles they have and, and the tag titles they could. We we thought they might do Rude and Ziggler versus Street Profits. Like I don't know, are are they just going to try to make pay per views? You know three or so important matches and then they're going to save other stuff for TV because they're trying to make the TV ratings a little bit better. I, I I don't know. This was nonsense. This was nothing. It was literally just there to fill some time. Yeah. And a kickoff show as well. We got a 24 seven title match, R-Truth versus Drew Gulak. I don't even have the time on it. It was probably like three minutes, but I have nothing to say about it. I did like that they ran over to the kickoff show uh, table after the match and both kind of cut quick promos. It showed that it was all kind of in the same world and the kickoff show didn't exist separate from what was happening in the ring. But I'm a bit depressed because after the match, I saw Lucha House Party, you know, they got moved to Raw and now they're just chasing after the 24-7 title coming off of being title contenders on SmackDown. You have no tag teams basically on Raw. These guys should be title contenders. It's a joke. Um, I hope WWE or at least the people on Raw realize their talent and don't just shoehorn them into this 24-7 title picture. But really nothing to say about this. The kickoff show panel was fine. The intro to, to Hell in a Cell was good. But really from the extremities of it, like the, the individual items that surrounded those three matches, there was really nothing to write home about. It was the three Hell in a Cell matches that totally delivered, even if you didn't love the main event. And this pay-per-view, if you took one of those out, I feel like the grading for the pay- entire pay-per-view as a whole would have been way lower than it actually was. Yeah, I mean, at least they didn't take up too much of our time with with the other stuff. You know, it was you know, quick allies already, quick whatever. They gave us a handful of them. They didn't give us, you know, we didn't have two, three matches in a row where nothing mattered. So, like, they have been going short, short pay-per-views for quite a while during all this, fewer matches. I'm a, uh, I'm a big fan of that. It makes you, it makes... The, the nothingness a lot more palatable because it takes up less of the show. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. I got a DM from Rowdy Nation at Sean M. Riley. He says, the four correct individuals now hold the four major solo titles in WWE for this moment in time. The four best wrestlers of the moment, Asuka, Sasha Banks, Roman Reigns, and Randy Orton. So I don't necessarily know if that's exactly true. But what I will say is they might be the four MVPs of the quarantine COVID-19 era, the the Thunderdome extended era, because Asuka was that MVP. Then Bailey and Sasha combined kind of got in there. So let's say it's Sasha. Roman, since coming back, has been the MVP of SmackDown. And Randy definitely has been the MVP of Raw. He's been the front runner of wrestler of the year. So I don't know if they're necessarily the four correct individuals to hold the titles, but I do think that they are the four MVPs of this era holding the four major titles in this current era. Yeah, I mean, I mean, who, so the, the ones who lost were Bailey and Drew, but they were... And they deserve credit too. And yeah, and they were great. So, I mean, there have been a handful of people who have had the belts, not many in this period. And other than that brief bit with Braun and... And Bray, it was a little bit weird, but um, no, this this is a very solid group of four major singles champions to have right now for sure. 
All right, well, let's get to the final part of our incident analysis of WWE Hell in a Cell, which is our final grade. Now, like I said earlier in the show, I did forget to ask for a pre-show expectation type of grade, but nevertheless, we will persist with our post-show final grade. Now, Chris, one thing we talked about on the last instant analysis, it has been pretty shocking that despite people having some pretty legitimate complaints about WWE television, namely Raw, SmackDown's been pretty solid over the last few months. The last three WWE pay-per-views have really delivered. It was probably the best three pay-per-view stretch that the company's given us in quite some time. Well, according to our listeners and people who now follow us or saw our poll on Twitter, this is the best four-stretch pay-per-view WWE has given us in quite some time. 35% of respondents said this was an A pay-per-view. 56% of respondents said this was a B pay-per-view. Only 7% said C and 2% said D. So that means we're basically at 90% of respondents said an A or B pay-per-view. And that's the third or sorry, that's the fourth show in a row that this is, I think, above 80% combined. And if I think the last show, Clash of Champions, the A's actually outweighed the B's if memory serves. So, I mean, look, we can criticize Raw. We can criticize the popcorn matches, the three matches that we did kind of crap on here. But those three cell matches delivered. And what's most important from WWE is that the fans are happy. So what do you think about that result? Does that surprise you? And then you can go ahead and follow up with what was your grade, letter grade for the pay-per-view. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. And I, I think it's I think it's telling that, you know, on a on a Twitter poll type of thing, sometimes you get a lot of negative people on there. And, and so that they've had such a stretch here where our listeners, Twitter followers have been uh, pretty, pretty uh, feeling good about all of them. Thumbs up on them. That's I think it's a good sign of what they're doing on pay-per-views. And again, I really think the shorter pay-per-views are helping. It's highlighting the good stuff and it, it's weighing the good stuff more and it's making it easier to kind of not think about the not so good stuff. Um, so I'm going to give this show a B plus. It would have been an A minus if Roman uh, Roman J had main evented, probably if Bailey Sasha had main evented as well. Um, not enough depth of a show for me to, uh, to, to move it up to a potential A. So I give it a, a, a solid B plus. I'm in the same vein as you with that. I will say that Sasha Bailey, if that had main evented, this definitely gets ticked up a a half letter grade. You know, it goes from, for me, this was a B show, a flat B. Those three matches were really good. But if you only have one match that's a true A, flat A or higher on the show, I thought Sasha Banks and Bailey was an A plus. I thought Jey Uso and Roman Reigns was an A minus. Then you know, giving a B or B minus to the other match and the rest of them being C or worse, they all really weigh that down. So for me, this was a B pay-per-view, flat B, but it was good, really good. Bearded Browns guy 88 at Joe the Bearded One. He said Sasha Bailey and Roman J single-handedly gave the show an A. Nicholas Dominic at Dominic 13 said could have been an A if, if they swapped the two men's cell matches. So people yep. are all right in line with us in this train of thought. Yeah, I mean, the... The good stuff on this pay-per-view was really good. Uh, like really two A quality, AA plus quality things 
in those in, in the Roman match and the Sasha match. Um, yeah, probably not enough to put it up to an A yet for me. But but when when the good is really good and there's just a limited amount of other stuff, I, I think you come out of it feeling pretty good. And once again, we come out of a pay per view feeling pretty good. It, it's like every week Raw feels too long, and every month the pay per views feel just right. They do because they're not too long anymore. They're not going four, four and a half hours. You know, they're not they're not dragging on with nine matches plus one or two on the pre-show. They're keeping it pretty short. And I think they deserve credit for putting on really good pay-per-views. Now, the question is, because we've been pretty down on Raw as of late, are they going to follow it up strong Monday night? And that's going to be a very big question. So we're going to have to wait and see. But I think the listeners, the fans got it right with that A and B range. You know, if you average those out, it's probably a B plus what they were trying to say. I think the difference between a B, your B plus and my B is minimal. Both of us agree it would probably be, you know, a half letter grade better if one of our preferred matches would have main evented, but we still got those matches on the show. You know, and I think they deserve a lot of credit for realizing not to put Hell in a Cell matches back to back, for giving us real finishes to the Hell in a Cell matches, not the crap they've given us the last couple of years. And honestly, telling some pretty damn good stories. They knew they had three really strong storylines here. And they gave us three really strong matches to conclude or significantly advance those storylines. So credit where it's due to WWE, ultimately a good pay-per-view, four really good pay-per-views in a row from them. And now we move on to Raw and obviously SmackDown with the build to Survivor Series. It seems, by the way, that Survivor Series is going to be tri-brand Raw, SmackDown, and NXT. But I don't believe we have the true details on if it's going to be all three brands and triple threat matches or exactly what they're going to do this year. Hopefully we get an inkling of that coming up this Monday on Raw. Now, for all of our listeners, a reminder, just because we did Hell in a Cell instant analysis tonight does not mean that we'll be missing WWE this week. There is still a ton of stuff that happened on SmackDown that we have not talked about. Yes, we're going to talk about the death of Shorty G. Yes, we're going to talk about... Daniel Bryan's pretty hysterical moments on SmackDown. But all of that is going to happen in our regular WWE show this Tuesday. So we're going to talk everything from SmackDown. We're going to talk everything that happens Monday night on Raw just a couple days from now. And then the Silver King will be back on Thursday, breaking down everything that happens from NXT Halloween Havoc and the latest edition of AEW Dynamite. Please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Also, since you have listened to this entire show, since you hopefully have loved this entire show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop us a five-star rating and review, and let the public know how much you love the show. Every single time a new review is added, it helps our podcast rankings. We get more listeners. Our last couple of episodes have been way up from a listenership standpoint, and we only want to grow from here. Thank you all once again for listening. The next two months of Getting Over are going to be spectacular. Some big interviews lined up. Our 100th show is upcoming, and we will have our Getting Over year-end awards, of which you will be able to contribute. So thank you all once again for listening. Tell your friends. Don't forget to subscribe if if you're a first-timer. For Chris Vanini, this is the Silver King Adam Silverstein. Just three words left for you. Bye for now.